0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of Pharmacast, the podcast from the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University, Belfast. This is the next podcast in our research theme and delighted to be joined by a number of special guests today, including one who's joining us remotely on Zoom to talk a little bit about open research in a range of different ways. So without further ado, I'll introduce our guests, starting with Dr. Shaliza Carmali, who is a lecturer here at the School of Pharmacy at Queen's. We're also joined by a couple of colleagues from the Central University, so Michael O'Connor, who is a research data management officer. And Rebecca Clark, who is an open research librarian here at Queen's University, Belfast. And on Zoom, we're joined by Dr. Johnny Coates, who, amongst other things, is the associate director of ASAP Bio, which we'll talk a little bit about later on as well. So just to get into the conversation, we're talking around open research, we're talking around open access. We'll talk about preprints as well, what they are and what they mean as well uh, later in the conversation wanted to really jump into that that conversation immediately with yourself Rebecca really talking about open access so could you tell us maybe a little bit about what open access actually is how that might be a little bit different to what things have been done traditionally in terms of publication as well it's
1: it's always the golden question I suppose when you say you're an open access librarian or you're open research librarian what what is open access you know so um, the way I explain it is, open access is as it says it is, um, it's open, it's accessible, it's free, um, it's, it's shareable, um, but the most important thing about, I think about open access publication is that it's free of most copyright and licensing um, restrictions that you do find the traditional publishing houses had prior to the advent of open access becoming more mainstream within our publication and how we actually publish um, as academics and researchers so um, yeah, that's the main thing uh, I suppose to know what it really is is to understand what you know traditional publishing did before um, and really to understand that you have to understand your copyright and your rights with copyright and what copyright is so the way I say it is copyright has two parts um, economic and moral and really before Um, you know open access was even an option you would have got academics like yourselves researchers uh, getting accepted for publications and um, when you get accepted for a publication you sign over a copyright transfer agreement so you're talking maybe 2012, 2013, 2014 right up Um, and really when that Copyright transfer agreement. That's where things get a bit murky for what the researcher actually holds and keeps. It's a bit like saying yes to your, um, you know, terms and conditions with uh, anything, any corporation. You don't really know what you're giving away, sure. and no one really did. So, essentially, what they were giving away was everything. They were giving away their moral um, copyright, uh, moral uh, copyright, and their economics. And the moral was actually the right to be attributed to that copyright. So, um, what publisher, publishing houses were doing is they were keeping those research articles the copyright to them was attributed to the publishing house and the licensing that they could put on that was up to them and they actually kept the economic rights of that copyright as well so how they're licensed how they could distribute how, how, how they could actually put up paywalls to say you can't access that that was really at the you know the, the, the publisher's discretion it was It was all signed over to the publisher so really that's what publishing was like and publishing to a large extent is still like that open access has not changed that um, I suppose publishing houses have come on board and said well um, we do have this open access option if you require it um, but open access essentially what it does is it makes sure that the copyright remains with you um, and that's your moral and your economic rights, and therefore you can put any license you want on that. Generally, it's Creative Commons licenses that people use, but um, those licenses really allow you to disseminate, share, tweak, um, as long as there's correct attribution to you know how you're using it and correct attribution to the, re- the original author. But essentially, open access for me, um, I feel very passionate about it because it gives greater autonomy over that research back to the people who are writing the research. And also, if that research that you're writing has come from the public purse or you've um, received funding from public bodies, um, much like many institutions do, and even individual researchers, you know, it is it is paramount that... Um, that transparency is in that publication so you know creative commons licences allow that um, work to be disseminated freely and um, there's no paywalls on that readability so you know you can get people, I, I often use the analogy if it's published open access um, if you are sitting in an Ergon library you will be able to access that research that that academic has produced that's taken that taxpayer's money and produced that research and that's open and accessible to you to read as freely as you want. Now there's loads of different arguments around you know you know this proliferation of information and how that should be you know catalogued and whatnot and that's fair enough but the reality is that you know open access does make everything open and fair and accessible um I'll leave it at that. Or <laughs> no, look, I don't, don't want to bore I,
0: people. No, not <laughs> at all. I think it's very interesting. It's a, it's a great review in terms of, of what open access actually is. And I think a lot of people listening might not necessarily realise that, particularly people who have maybe tried to access research from Lurgan Library before. Uh, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. It just, happens, folks. Who, who has <laughs> well, we've, we've all been there. <laughs> um, and it's been that thing where if you want to read that paper, if you have done a web search for something and there's, there's maybe a bit of research that's there, it's a, unless you have access to a subscription through a university or whatever else, it might be, it's pay, what can sometimes be quite a significant amount of money to access a paper. And even
1: if you look at what publishing houses to, to, or do and or keep doing to universities, you know, them subscription bundle deals, like you're talking thousands of pounds in a subscription bundle that they're given to say a Queen's University library. Mm-hmm. And you know, Queen's University library maybe only need about you know, five or six of that um, journal portfolio yeah. That, that yeah. you know, that, that, that is key readership, but they bundle all these journals in with it and they say, well, you're getting such value for money two hundred and fifty thousand pound, I don't think you are. Yeah. You know, that's that money could be better spent actually helping people early career researchers publish open access, or, or you know, invest in um, you know, even I would argue invest in uh, publishing houses for Queens itself. Like a, what's that called again, Michael? I can never remember the name of it. Uh, Which one? Like you know, if you it was a, it's an in house pub in house publication houses. Okay. You know that you could actually make a complete framework yourself. Sure. So you're giving so much of this money over to publishers, it's just...
2: Can I pick up on that point? Of course, absolutely. I think what Rebecca said rightly points to the unfairness of the system. So traditional scholarly publishing is really quite a mad system Mm. where researchers will get money to undertake research and then in order to get that published, they will sign their rights completely over to a journal Mm. and also that material is hidden behind a paywall Mm. which historically institutions like Queen's would have had to pay two million pounds per year for uh, general annual subscription mm. costs. So the researcher who, undertake, who undertook the work has no rights and also doesn't actually even have access to the material that they authored. And open access is about a much fairer and more equitable system about accessing the research that they undertook. But also uh, another advantage is about the fact that it's freely available all you need is an internet connection so whether you're a specialist or non-specialist through the right combination of keywords you'll access material which formerly would have been hidden behind a paywall or which would only be accessible via um, paywalls or, or library annual subscription charges. Yeah. So it can also mean the difference between life and death. I just want to cite the example. There's a guy in Belfast called Don Sims and his son contracted VCJD in, I think it was 2002. Mm-hmm. And it's a very famous case where the father was able to find out about experimental medicine that would um, be able to benefit his son with his c- the condition that he had. Yeah and the father took the government to court it was a a legal battle where he fought and successfully won so that his son was able to be treated with experimental medicine. Mm -hmm. Now was the father a scientist? No, he was an ordinary layman but in his desperation he went and was able to check online to see what information was out there about Mm -hmm. VCJD and experimental medicines and because that material was open access he was able to freely access it and find out about it so in certain and in, um, in certain circumstances and with certain research it is the difference between life and death and improving um, the quality of life for people now unfortunately in that instance the son did die but he he was able to
0: uh, his life was extended
2: by by accessing that experimental medicine for ten whole years yeah
0: yeah I, I, you know that's kind of asked and answered the questions around the, the benefits to this we've talked a little bit about the benefits to researchers in terms of getting the research out there particularly if it's publicly funded and, and also to researchers who are then able to see other people's work working lot more easily and that can kind of help what they're doing but also from the sort of public facing side as well which is if you do want to do research into things, if you do want to have a look at, at what's going on out there, if you're a student and you happen to be working on, on degree X or Y and you know that's, there's no truer situation than within the School of Pharmacy where we would encourage students to engage with you know the current literature when, when they are having a look at, at various different topics the, the benefits are all there in terms of open access. I guess there's you know in terms of the chalk and cheese argument with these things there are probably always some challenges around open access in terms of of making that work Uh, i was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about what those challenges might be unless it is a utopian vision of course not (laughs)
1: because i I love this But open access like you know it it, it, honestly the benefits greatly outweigh the negatives here but it's finance like you know it's money everything boils down to money um whether it's you know Gold open access, or even to an extent, green open access. You know, it, it's finding the funds because if you find the publish, what well, publishing houses? I'm I'm fascinated by publishing houses mm-hmm. and their and their how they actually make their money, um, but. If you look at what they've do, what they've done recently, and um, they've just increased APCs, article processing charges. So if you want to get your article published, gold open access, you know, you go to Springer Nature. We are talking about six thousand oh. pounds. Like, where's that money coming mm. from? Do you know, and we know where it's going to come from. It's going to come from funding bodies like UKRI, mm. but that's just not sustainable. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got funders as well that are working to try and make it a more sustainable approach. There's there are a lot of things that they're doing. You know, in terms of, you know making institutions um, start rights retention strategies, you know making sure the accepted manuscripts are open access, freely available online immediately um, which which are problematic too. so again there there is this vast pot of money yeah. <laughs> that publishers are making from academics who are publishing and of course, but academics want to get published and you want to get published in those high impact factor journals yeah. which generally are you know, Hybrid journals, which charge exor- exorbitant fees for okay. um, article processing charges. Now, I'm not saying that open access, fully open access journals don't do the same. They do. Um, the, the charges have just gone up and up and up mm-hmm. every year. And then we've got um, open access books that are coming into the, okay. the whole wheelhouse of, of academic publishing, and that that's really spearheaded, I suppose, through UKRI policy. Yeah. You know, and you know, then we look at that and we transfer UKRI policy, and then we think to REF. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of challenges, yeah. and there will be a lot, and it, like they'll they'll only get worse in the next five years or so. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there's there's challenges, but we we have smart solutions too. We have great minds. <laughs> <laughs> I think also I think just there's a
2: bewildering o- array of choice, mm. and for from a researcher perspective, do I want to get published green? Do I want to get published gold? Which journal do I select? Do I comply with my funder mandate if I publish in this journal over that journal? Mm. All of those things make it actually very confusing for people who are outside of open research, and even us that work in open research <laughs> will say there is no department that you would probably work in in the library where the updates are so regular. There's a constant change to funder policy, sure. and it has an impact then on compliance and then future funding for departments and institution and being REF eligible and all of those things. So for me, one of the challenges is actually just keeping on top mm. of all of that sort of bureaucracy as well. Um, Rebecca made the point about researchers wanting to get published, and of course they do, and and publishers tap into this real demand to get published because it's this idea of publish or perish. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges, but one, one of the things that, that researchers probably need to be aware of, is this has led and has spawned a sort of mini-industry of poor quality or predatory journals mm-hmm. where anything can get published provided you pay a certain price. And some researchers won't know the difference between a high-quality journal and what is particularly either a nefarious or a dodgy journal, and they'll pay the amount of money in order to get published because that's so contingent on their next steps in their career and um, lectureships and so on and so forth. So predatory journals are something, and poor-quality journals, are something that researchers need to have their eye on because it's quite easy to get seduced by some of these, as I say, nefarious publishers out there. Yeah.
1: Whereas I would argue that most publishers are quite predatory. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They all look the same to me now, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. there's, there's something in it for, for all absolutely. of them in terms of... Oh, innovation. absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. One thing I wanted to come back with, because you, you've both mentioned it a few times now, and it's something that I, I know very little about, apart from you know, excluding everybody else in the room around us, you've mentioned gold and green open access mm-hmm. a couple of times. What are what's the difference between those two things? What what are they? Um your reaction to that question looks like it's a, a sort of complex answer, but uh, it might be good to know no. a little bit more about that. I'll, uh,
1: no. um, I'll go gold first, is that okay? <laughs> um gold's easy to explain. So gold um open access is when the um work is available on the publisher's website, freely accessible. Mm. You've paid an article processing charge to essentially remove the subscription charge that you would normally pay. But um so when you when you publish gold open access and um, you're paying an APC the work's made open access and it's got a creative commons license on it and the problem is with gold open access is this there's fully open access journals and there's hybrid journals and you can get gold open access via both um, so with a fully open access journal you will have to pay that APC if you're publishing in a gold open access journal fully open access journal you will have to pay an article processing charge to publish in that journal there's no way about that ranges from 1,500 to 2,500, but you will know that from the outset, you will know that I'm publishing a fully open access journal, this is fully gold open access, that's perfectly fine. With a hybrid journal, and this is where it gets problematic, you can publish gold open access, they will give you the option to publish with gold open access, but, um, and that fee will remain the same, but what they say is, if you don't want to publish of Nexus, that's perfectly fine. We still have the green route available to you, which um, is you publish the traditional way, you sign over your copyright to us, and we'll license back the accepted manuscript and you can put that on a repository such as Pure. And then you can have that available after about 12 month or 18 month embargo. It just depends on the publisher that you're publishing with. Um, so that's... But, but say you're an academic and you want to publish gold with that particular journal you'll publish gold and you'll say well I want to pay the £2,500 because I have the option to pay sure. that however it's what we call double dipping so <laughs> um, a hybrid journal will also get the money in from the gold open access fee that you're paying them okay. but they're also getting a subscription fee from the library to give their academics access yep. to the material that that journal yep. produces so they're getting um, subscription fees and they're also getting APCs that's a problem so that's gold open access if it's a fully gold open fully open access journal part of your elbow publishing it um, and generally a lot of those fully open access journals you're hearing a lot of language I suppose with publishers that say um, they have transformed we have these are transformative journals they've transformed into fully open access journals what you find is it's high impact factor journals that have transformed all of a sudden into fully open access journals which is quite quite interesting and from my perspective but um but then green open access is much more i suppose it's much more what's the word democratic maybe i don't know less exciting less exciting maybe (laughs) yeah so uh, green open access is really when you publish with uh, a normal journal the same way you always would have published um and they don't have an open access route uh, or they just say to you, oh you want to go gold and you said absolutely not i want to use your green route and generally what um publishers at that stage do is they license back your accepted manuscript to you and they say you can put that on your um repository um the, your, of your institution or whatever repository you want and um, within 12 months um 18 months or, or whatever maybe 24 months if you're arts and humanities and um, the problem with green open access currently when we're moving into you know UKRI policy and REF 2028 Mm -hmm. um, is that um, UKRI have said that they want the accepted manuscripts immediately available on the institutional repository um, with the creative commons license except the manuscripts aren't licensed with the creative commons license generally and okay. um, when they're licensed back so green open access is, uh, is going through a transformative phase too. Okay. Um but then you've got rights retention and everything in there and it gets a bit complicated sure. and just ah. Whenever yeah. I
2: would deliver training on this Rebecca <laughs> has really excellently and very succinctly described the detail of it mm-hmm. it is very complicated and confusing So I would pare it down, because that was all that I understood. So I would come in with a demo when I was delivering training to students about green and gold. And it's basically two flavors of the same type of publishing. So the content is being repackaged in two different ways. So Rebecca's talked about rights and she talked about agreements and I'm just talking about in terms of the actual article. Mm -hmm. So I would come in with a Viscount biscuit, which is um, basically, for those who remember, it's a chocolate-covered biscuit and it's got mint center and it's covered in a green wrapper. And then I would also come in with a Twix I don't know if that'll have to be edited out for for a legal reason but so it's a chocolate bar and it's covered in caramel but also has a very sort of recognizable logo and it's very glittery for want of a better term okay Mm -hmm. so i would say the green version of a paper is basically the word version Re- stripped away from the publisher's logo and formatting. And it's just the Word version that you go when you submit to a journal. Okay. So that's it. You can put that into your institutional repository and it may need to be embargoed. But it's basically... That's the research, okay? But it's not very glamorous or very exciting. It's a Word document, and it's that plain Viscount Biscuit. That's what the research looks like. Mm-hmm. Gold, so people... people you don't like Viscount well, Biscuits. Well, this I, is... <laughs> you know, well, I, I love a good <laughs> Well, uh, with, with the Twix, it's exactly the same content, yeah. but it's repackaged in a different way. So you've got the formatting and the logo of the journal, and people want to see and read... PDFs that have the journal, logo and title. But that plain word version is exactly the same content. So you're paying X amount of pounds, thousands usually, just for it to look slightly different, but essentially it's the same Mm. content. Mm. So that's one of the ways I try to explain it to myself, but it's essentially repackaging research in different ways to appeal to to people in different ways but also there's something fundamentally wrong about it because as academics and researchers very intelligent people we're constantly being told don't judge on appearances but essentially that's what we're doing yeah. with journals and selection of of, of, of uh, the titles of journals and high impact journals and op- and gold open access is all about
0: packaging and how it looks. Yeah. A lot of it goes back to that tradition of publishing in terms of what people maybe have been used to, and this is a new track, and it maybe takes a little time to.
1: And, and you say it's new. It's not actually even that new. <laughs> you know, it's it's you're 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 ten years in, I suppose, now to like open access becoming so um, commonplace mm. within publishing, yeah. and obviously this these journal these high impact factor journals you know transforming. I would be really interested from your perspective as researchers like how much pressure are you under to publish in high impact journals doesn't matter to you the reputation of the journal are there a select few journals that you would actually publish and say oh, I want that because that's what we've always done or what what is because I don't know the thinking behind it I, I'm, I'm quite ignorant of that
3: I would say there is pressure to mm. publish in high impact journals but from my perspective, I would rather find a good home Mm. for that journal where it makes sense.
1: So that does matter to you in that sense? Okay, okay. Um,
3: Obviously, I think um, reputation always matters when you publish, right? Mm -hmm. So we look for, well, I personally look for journals that have a good reputation, Mm -hmm. um, not just in terms of impact, but I know that the peer review process is fair and, um, or at least as thorough as it should be. but mainly it's about how the scope of my work fits within that journal. Um, I think not all research can end up in nature. Um, maybe we'll <laughs> edit that one out. <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, always the names, isn't it? You're yeah. careful. <laughs> um, although I do like to publish there. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and can I just ask, because I am fascinated by publishing houses, uh, is there a particular publisher that you would go with um, that you'd think, yes, it's, you know, for, like, for example uh, I'm going with Elsevier or I'm going with BMC because they, those are my those are my two I toggle between those two or is there just a suite of uh, publishers that you think well actually I could go with any of those that's perfectly fine but uh, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by it you know
3: I don't know if I've ever looked at it that way uh-huh. um, but if I went back and looked at the papers that I've published um, most of them have been for ACS Yes. okay. No, yeah, I think yeah. that's because most of the work fits very well mm. into their journals. And they're, um, they're
1: very interested in how they publish. Very interi- Their gold open access models fascinating. I'll not say much more in the <laughs> 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 Fascinating. Fascinating. SES, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, very good.
3: Yeah, mm. but that's mostly where all of my research has well. kind of ended up. Right, well.
2: And it's really funny mm. when you're talking about high-impact journals mm-hmm. and journal impact factors. Mm-hmm. Journals, um, people that tend to publish in... in titles that have high impact factors, they're higher attraction rates for the research, Mm -hmm. they have fewer supporting tables and evidence so ironically these are the journals that people actually want to get published Mm -hmm. in but there's not they may not necessarily
0: be the best journals for your research Yeah, I think that comes back to your point Shalisa, which is it's about finding the right home for your research in terms of where and people are going to see acad- it and how it's yeah. best presented, I guess. And as so.
1: academics, you think of that very closely, like where, where's the best home for this, where's the best... Is that because of the distribution that the publisher might have or just the the field of expertise that they, they own?
3: I think it's the field of expertise okay. because you if you find a good home for mm-hmm. your paper, right, you can also expect that people that are reviewing your papers will be more closely related to the field. So I feel like there's an option or an opportunity to actually get valuable feedback from the peer review process Um, and you might get insightful things and it won't be as um, superficial or random when if you put your research into a a journal that doesn't quite fit exactly but you're more interested in um, high impact or some flashy journal name.
4: It does also, it it depends on the field of the researcher a lot as well because some fields will totally askew nature cell science Hmm. in favor of the small journals i've never heard of but because they're the journals that that field use and some fields are built around one or two journals essentially and that for those people that's their ideal home and home is a really good way of describing it if you're a conscientious researcher put it nicely (laughs) uh, you think you think of your you you think of it as a home for your paper yeah not just oh i'm going to publish in nature because. People will read it because it has a high impact factor mm. and ignoring, of course, all the issues with impact
0: factors. Well, yeah, so I was going to say, it's maybe, you know, it's more about where your work will have the most impact rather than the highest impact factor. And it's it sometimes may be a matter of delineating both of those things in terms of where the research goes out. Um, in terms of moving the conversation on, and, and, and Johnny and Chilise, I know you've, you've both commented on, on some of the, the previous discussion. I wanted to move on to talk a little bit about preprints because it's something that I don't know very much about, but I find quite fascinating in terms of, of how publications are, are being made now. Um, I guess, Johnny, maybe if I, if I start with yourself, from the very top on, on this in terms of explaining a little bit about what preprints actually are how that maybe differs to what we've talked about so far in terms of more traditional or, or standard for want of a better expression ways of, of publishing work that have been used you know in previous years.
4: I love preprints because they're a lot simpler than all of that open access model stuff I don't understand any of that so I'm <laughs> to my job now. Even after we explained it. <laughs> <laughs> Preprints essentially are just a manuscript that a researcher has shared online on a preprint server. So in the life sciences, the big preprint server is BioArchive. That's probably the one everyone's heard of. Um, And this is something that we've been doing now for about 10 years, maybe. Physics have been doing this for about 30 plus years. Um, And in physics, the publishing process now is that you preprint your work. So you have your manuscript, you post to a preprint server. And then that's basically it. You publish as a formality. In the life sciences, it's completely the other way around. And we publish as our way of saying, this is our final work. This is the bit we're happy with. Whereas really what we're trying to do is move it towards the physics model. Uh, Because preprints are citable. You can version them. So if you have changes, you can get public feedback. You can update your preprint. If you made a mistake, as we all find our mistakes once it's actually been published, (laughs) you can update it and fix it. Um, you know, you can, you can do work in progress. You can, there's a lot more flexibility. So you don't have to have a traditional journal article and the way that looked, you can post negative results a lot easier. You can pre-print a single figure if you wanted to, and it's all free. It's free to read. It's free to access and it's free to post. Also they appear online with about two days of posting rather than the six months to a year or more. I once went to a talk with someone had taken them 10 years to publish a single paper um don't get out of preprints it's two days
0: so that's a really good overview in terms of what those preprints are and, and and generally how they're done i guess and you've covered quite a lot of the advantages as well shaliza from from your perspective and i know you're a big advocate for preprints from your perspective what are so maybe some other advantages as a an active researcher in a particular area you're preprinting your work you're actively doing that why are you doing that what does that bring to the table for you
3: so I really like preprints because I've benefited from preprints. Um, as an early career researcher, uh, when I was postdocing, um, and then I was trying to find a, a post, um, it was a little bit difficult to get research published fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the PI that I was working with um, was OK to preprint. And the neat thing about that is that you can actually see it online. It has a DOI, so mm-hmm. you can cite it. Um, you can include it into your CV, and it showed that I had done the work. Yeah, so I had been productive there. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, because we want to publish and it's part of being an academic and a researcher, um, it's important that we go through that process, but it's also a very long process. Mm-hmm. Um and so as Johnny mentioned, when you preprint, it's available online in two days. Um, and it's nice to be able to disseminate that research. Um, at the speed that you want to yeah. while it's undergoing a peer review process. You can still get feedback um, from anybody in the community that can read your your paper. Um, you'll be able to improve on it, so you can update any type of version, and um, it just basically improves the research overall. Okay. It See. also has the potential to foster collaborations, right? Because I think it's a little bit of... If you're reading someone's work, you go, oh, that seems really, really interesting. Uh, Maybe I'll reach out and see if we can do something together or maybe I was working on something that was similar. Um, And so I think that kind of brings a different type of scope to how research is conducted and how it's disseminated
0: absolutely and it's, it is that thing of, of being able to go and find that research with that speed I guess you know I have it in a couple of days whereas that's an awful lot better than waiting 10 years maybe to publish something that, that could have had 10 years worth of impact and influenced 10 years worth of research and moving on as well I guess on that and I know and from my reading around as well there's been a few examples but Johnny, Shaliza are there any sort of real world examples that you can use maybe in sort of more recent times and i kind of reticent to use the, the COVID word because it feels like a podcast doesn't go by where it's not mentioned but where preprints and that speed of getting that research out there um, and that information out there has maybe had a real tangible massive impact on on research areas and on how things have moved forward. COVID
4: is sadly the best. Example <laughs> of so I actually, when COVID hit, I switched and I did a I did some work looking at how preprints were used during the pandemic. Sure. Um, and the pandemic completely revolutionized how preprints certainly were used in not just by academics, but also by journalists and by policymakers. So you f- suddenly found that in policy documents that were being used for things like putting us into lockdown, you were seeing the word preprint come up. Um, and, you know, I was traveling around on the I still I go to work. So I was traveling on the tube every day to work. And the few people who were still around, you every now and then you'd hear someone say preprint, which was just surreal because scientists still don't really know what they are. Never mind the general person on the tube. But they really changed a lot. and. The best examples are those ones where things like the vaccines, all of that was open and it was all shared. So i actually, go back even further. The SARS-CoV-2 genome, right? That was shared openly on uh, virology.org, which you can kind of think of that as a preprint. It wasn't peer-reviewed; it was just shared openly for everyone, and it was shared before the end of 2019 or just at the start of 2020. I can't quite remember. And you know that that wouldn't have happened if that had. had to go through peer review on the flip side journals adapted very quickly and they showed i think that they can do things very differently if they're forced to do so so we had a lot of things going through peer review in just record times um the more infamous example would be the hydroxychloroquine stuff that got peer reviewed i think it was in 2 days um oh, we maybe don't want it this is the stuff you'd see you'd you'd cut out we might not <laughs> want <it> in, two <laughs> five, in, in 2 days but, you know, that is that there's the flip side that journals can be a lot more adaptive than they have been. What about quality? Yeah. What about quality if something's been peer
2: reviewed in such a small time frame? And what about reputational what a, damage to the researcher?
4: What a great question, because we also looked at that. So <laughs> we, the other thing we did, and this is actually this is a good example of why you should preprint. So we preprinted the first version of our paper and it got publicly reviewed by one of the many preprint review services that had sprung up during the pandemic. And one of the things the reviewers said was, there's a lot of work here. This could be two papers. So we ended up with two papers instead of one, which was great for us as researchers. And our second paper was looking at the quality of preprints compared to their published versions. So we did that for the COVID and the non-COVID stuff. And basically peer review doesn't really do much, whether it's COVID or not. We found like over 80% just don't change. And that's, you know, you might have something from the main figures being moved to the supplemental material. The abstracts really didn't change much at all. Um, And this is something that you'll see if you talk to researchers who are honest about what they do, they will tell you peer review doesn't substantially change their work most of the time. It makes it a bit better. You know, the data will tell you that confidence intervals are reduced, for example, in data that goes through peer review. But if the main message isn't changing, then why do we need to spend, you know, up to a year or more? Which for an early career researcher can be career-breaking. And all that money, we can spend tens of thousands on peer review changes. I mean, think if, you, if someone asks you to do sequencing, everyone loves to do a bit of RNA these days. That's not cheap to do. And that's a lot of money that could be better spent on other things, on a new project, moving, some, moving forward instead of, sort of tweaking something you've already got. Um, in terms of reputation, I, I've not seen any reputational damage from good data. The benefit of preprints is they're open. And so if someone puts some crap out there, which they did do a lot during COVID, uh, it gets commented on and it gets picked up and people will tear it apart quite rightly. And as you said earlier, everything has a home somewhere because you just have to pay enough money and someone will publish your work. The difference is, preprints come without that validity, without that seal of validity. Even scientists have this thing when they read a paper, because it's got a journal name attached to it, they will just instinctively trust it more. And I think oftentimes we forget we we shouldn't do that. We need to check what we're reading. We need to essentially peer review everything as we read it. Just time consuming. But you know preprints don't have that sticker and that label, which I think makes them a bit more trustworthy, in my opinion.
2: Can I ask you a question about peer review and the relationship with journals? So if you submit your paper to a preprint server and you're getting community feedback, community peer review, um, I'm kind of curious if you get a lot of feedback is that confusing for the researcher because you might be torn in so many different directions about maybe what you should do with it? And secondly, uh, say if you decide at the end that you actually want to formally submit it to a journal, how can you maintain anonymity? Because most journals are blind, peer-reviewed, and if you've put it in a preprint server, your name's attached to it. So it would be very easy if you were a a reviewer to identify who
4: that author is. And that's exactly what I do when I get review requests. I Google it to see if there's a preprint because as a reviewer, that helps me... Decide if I'm the best person to review it or not, because instead of having an abstract, I now actually see the whole thing. Um, and there's been a few cases where the abstract looks like I can review it, and then when I've looked at the preprint, I, I don't know what I'm talking about there, so I have to say no. Um, obviously, you do you lose that anonymity, and there's not really any way around that. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. What was the first question? <laughs> uh, the first question was if you get
2: too many comments from people on your preprint about determining the outcome of it and what, what avenue you should, how you should develop it, and.
4: Yeah. So, so the comments you get vary massively. Sometimes it's stuff on Twitter. There's some really good examples where people have gotten amazing input from people on Twitter or in the comments section of the preprint. The other side of that is you get very formalized, almost journal-like peer review, so that our our, paper, our preprint had that kind of peer review. Um, and now what we're seeing is a lot of those services, you can actually take those review reports and submit that with your preprint to the journals. So now you're saving time. You don't just have, you're not submitting and waiting for an editor to find reviewers. You're giving them the reviews and you can already be working on the, the, the reviews that have been suggested. And then, you know, that speeds up the process. It makes it public. So now people can see how your paper and your work has evolved, which is quite nice. I've not seen anyone get particularly confused with the comments. But what I will, so our second paper was all about quality and because one of our main conclusions was few of you might not be all that important. Publishers don't like to hear that, right? Because one of the things publishers always will say is, oh, well, we offer you this this brilliant service of peer review. Um, so obviously they don't, they don't want that to be attacked in any way. But we got a lot of negative backlash from that.
0: So with that risk in mind, I guess, of, of how these things can, can kind of go down, I wanted to maybe ask both yourself, Johnny, and Chaliza a little bit about ASAP Bio as well again i know you're both big proponents of preprints um there's a, a growing community of people out there who are, are very pro preprint lots of p's there um i was i just wanted to maybe take a little bit of time for you maybe to, to fly the flag for ASAP Bio. talk a little bit about what that is um talk a little bit about how people may get involved in that if if they wanted to i'm not sure who wants to take that question
4: uh okay i'll stop <laughs> so ASAP Bio is a non-profit been around for a while now And the entire focus is to promote preprint adoption in the biosciences. And we've been doing a really good job of that. It's run by Jessica, who is just one of the best people you'll ever meet in academia. It's a a dream job to work with. (laughs) And it's really between that and BioArchive, I think, is why preprints and life sciences are where they are now. And the reality is it's still a small adoption. It's about 10 percent of the literature is preprinted in the life sciences. So So it's really small. Pre-pandemic, that was only three and a bit percent, so it's gone up quite a lot. Um, And we do all kinds of things to promote preprint use. One of the things we do is run a yearly fellows program, which I can then hand over, because I I run that program, but Shaliza is is part of that program this year. Um,
3: Yeah, so um, this fellows program, I actually um, signed up for it, and I wasn't very expecting to actually join it because I thought it would be a lot of people wanting to learn more about preprints. Um, but it's, it's a very nice program that runs um, with another, I think, 40 fellows mm-hmm. um, across the world, basically. So they're spread out, and everybody has a huge interest into preprints. And it's, it's quite neat because you get to learn more about pre- preprints, their advantages, how to communicate better about preprints, um, and even get to do some, um, some, some small projects where you can learn um, how to um, understand better. Uh, how preprints are used, um, how they're um, changing mm-hmm. uh, the publishing landscape to some extent. Um, and yeah, it's been great, actually. Like I've been learning a lot from other types of uh, researchers from different fields, how preprints have been used in very different areas. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice to actually learn about um, how you can disseminate your research in very innovative ways. Sure.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to provide all of that information for a- ASAP Bio with the, the various different bits and bobs that will go out with the podcast. So if anyone listening is interested in finding out a little bit more, finding out about how to get involved, you'll be able to follow all the salient links along with the podcast. I guess we've flown the flag for open research in a range of different ways here. And maybe to kind of draw the conversation to a close for this time anyway, And I know there's probably an awful lot more to talk about and Michael around Research Data, which is probably another five hour long podcast in itself an epic and we'll maybe yes. uh, if you're happy to do three so v- three back- volumes at least <laughs> uh, yes. to come back and, and have a, a conversation around that as well because I know that's obviously very very important but on that that sort of open publishing and I, I do try and like to finish these podcasts off with, with some advice for somebody who's maybe listened to the podcast has decided to maybe dip their toe in the water with this sort of thing um just to open this to the floor in terms of if that person was sitting here right now they have listened to everything that you said they're very interested in and in publishing through open access or publishing a pre-print what sort of advice what sort of sort of one line piece of information or consideration would you give them if they were thinking about doing all of those types of things is there any sage words of wisdom you'd pass on?
2: Well, from a research data management perspective, it would be two things. One is fair, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. Your data can be as open as possible, Mm -hmm. but as as close as as necessary. And secondly, check your funder mandate with respect of data sharing, because that will influence where you might potentially have to share your data and what you have to share. So the small print is really important with regards to funders.
1: I think I reiterate that you know your funder you have to check your funder but also just on your preprints it's just very interesting you are paving the way on the preprints and you know there's been a lot of work on preprints and you you raised physics there um, you know developing archive um, what 1991 I think that was created Um, but you know you'll see you are paving the way for um, you know a revolution that's happening within um, publication Mm -hmm. houses but yeah, young start out academics, um, preprints are certainly something I would consider, um, especially if it actually clarifies what you're doing. Um, but in terms of gold open access, um, yeah, it's all about the money unfortunately folks. It's it's uh, there's not much advice I can give other than that. But yeah, um preprints is just very interesting what you've said about preprints and um, how that's moving and changing the direction and mm-hmm. tide it's also changing the direction and tide of how publishing houses are operating and um, do you remember they're, be- they're calling themselves global analytics companies um, and they're buying up a lot of preprint servers so just be watch watchful of that watchful where bio is funded from and who buys that over and who buys e prints
2: and whatnot. So, so I was a- yeah. ASAP bio,
4: don't sell their yeah. souls, to Don't sell your <laughs> soul. Yes. We'd be yeah. very cross. I wasn't gonna mention I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't mentioning the publisher who cannot be named, you know. Oh, but, but, but um It's yeah. a very interesting point because I mean we started this talking about how publishers charge a lot of money and there's a lot of money in the system. And I think one of the things certainly I found surprising talking to academics is that the history of publishing in academia and the history of peer review is not at all understood by most academics. You, you can talk to professors who've been publishing for you know 34 years, and they have no idea how the system actually works or what it's built on. And the publishing system is estimated to sit somewhere between the music industry and the movie industry in terms of the money it makes and generates. And you know, the publishers make more profit margins than Google, Apple, Walmart, whatever you want. It's insane considering that it's academics and we're... I mean- You're doing if, the work. You yeah, you're yeah, 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 read an academic paper. And, you know, all this open access movement, preprints are part of that. It's all about changing, not just how we do publishing, but the whole research infrastructure and system. And you know publishers are buying up all of it. They own most preprint servers now. They also own most of the services by which academics are judged. Most of your metrics come from publisher owned bodies now. And they have a complete grip on the whole system. So I think my advice would be to just educate yourself a bit, but listening to this is a good start. you know, get aware of where everything comes from the background and how we're moving forward and what, you know, what you can do to do your little bit to push it. Uh,
0: Absolutely I, I think that's all some some great advice I think um, John as you've mentioned hopefully this podcast acts as a, a good starting point for people who maybe haven't thought so much about open access or about publishing preprints as well so um, as I've mentioned I will um, provide some additional information um, a- along with the podcast so that anyone that's interested or wants to find out a little bit more can, can dive into that and, and start to think about how they can get their, their publications and their research knowledge out there uh, and start maybe yeah accelerating the process and having a bit more impact with their work. So, look, thanks very much to all of you um, for, for the conversation today. I know there's probably an awful lot more that we could have talked about and we we may well, hopefully, um, in future episodes of the podcast talk a little bit more about this and uh, different ways that the publishing can help specifically the pharmacy and, and, and further afield. But for now, I'll, I'll say thanks very much to Shaliza Carmally, to Michael O'Connor, to Rebecca Clark and to Johnny Coates as well. And once again, I will provide some additional information along with the podcast and also through our social media channels in relation to various things things. things that we've talked about throughout the episode today so thanks very much again to the four of you for joining me on the podcast thanks very much for everybody who's been listening at home and we'll hopefully see you and hear you on the next podcast very soon so thanks very much for now